Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Voxology Podcast. My name is Mike Erie, located near Nashville, Tennessee. With me is my cohort, my partner in crime. Cohort. Yep. Um, Timothy John Stafford, coming at you live from Auburn, California. Auburn. And, and let's talk, speaking of burn, let's talk about your San Francisco Giants. Oh, too soon. Too um, soon. We're recording too this. Soon. We're recording this the day after the 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 flinch that will be heard around the world forever. Yeah, I can't. I can't even comment. So I almost, um, I almost had to go for a run last night because I was so <laughs> wound up. If you don't know what we're talking about, it's um, it's October baseball. The 107 win Giants facing off against their arch rival L.A. Dodgers. Yep. And there was a. A called third strike from the first base coach. That is terrible, in dispute. Terrible way to end the season. Whether or not they were going to win the game or not, that's not how you end a season like that. That was just absolutely terrible and to the worst team possible. I can't even. So Tim's terrible times sponsor yeah. you, sponsored to you from first base today. It's just tears. I know. I know. I thought of you last night. I didn't, I didn't see it. I'm not a huge baseball guy, but the interwebs blew up um, once that was that that call was made, and so I was all over it, thinking about you. Well, and I thought, you know, it definitely sh- shows you who the Lord of this earth is. <laughs> An enemy has done this. I think is what you're saying. Um, so besides that, Timothy, how are you? How was your week? Good. Good, good, good. I started a new physical challenge. I've been getting up at 4.45 and going and working out in the morning. Whoa. Yeah. And His body's what? not going to turn itself around, apparently. I have no, to get well, it, it'll turn itself round, <laughs> yeah, just but it will round. not turn itself around. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All well, true. Well, great. I mean, that's that's really great. And because you have such a hard time sleeping i'm sure knowing you're going to get up at 4:45 really helps you fall asleep yeah i wake up exactly at 4:41 before my <laughs> alarm goes off it's the weirdest thing i don't oh, get it oh all right um i have a whole bunch of people before we get the show rolling rolling got, i've got a whole bunch of people to thank my goodness um again we are a nonprofit we are crowdfunded and we are very grateful we are very grateful um for your support and so we want to thank uh, randy and kelly we want to thank matt uh and kendra and sam and donald and michael wow for coming on um the patreon team and again you go to patreon.com type in voxology mike erie and uh, you can find us there or uh there's actually another mechanism that, that some people use to give um and that is something called tithely you can find out more about that on our website. So it's all, in the, all in the show notes too, dude. Oh, just so I don't have to. Ke- I don't have to click. keep saying it. Nope, it's in there. They can just click it. Dude, you're so good, man. You're so good. You're so much more than a friend. Oh, um, wow. You are a friend with benefits. Let me just say that. <laughs> so I want to thank all those people. And uh, today, today we got a show for you, ladies and gentlemen. Timothy, hit that music, baby. So, uh, Seth Theory had a question. Uh, Seth Theory went up to uh, Ohio this weekend. He is going to visit his brother, and um, he had a question. He said, um, "He said in his, you know, incredible Seth way, uh, Daddy, Voxology recording, which is the question. Are you going to record today?" I said, "Yes." He said, "Talk about Seth." I said, "Yes." <laughs> Talk about Seth's life. Yes. So I am talking about Seth and his life right now, ladies and gentlemen. And um, just because he actually goes back and listens just to the front part. He never listens. Yeah. He doesn't, he's not a big fan of dad talking, which, you know, no one can blame him there. But he's a big fan if he hears his name or if he's speaking. So yeah. here you go, Sethy. That's for you, baby. 
Um, I want to I wanna respond to an email. Oh. Oh, man, we, that, that we got this. This individual, call him Jeremy, um, man, really shared in the gentlest possible way um, a, uh, a rebuke. Uh-oh. <laughs> and, and it's like, you know, I mean, and, and when you hear it, it's like, whoa, you know, he's on to something. So uh, Mike, 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 and Tim. Oh. All right. So this is, Mike is clearly the one in the crosshairs here. Um, okay. I just listened to Darkness on the Edge of Town, the Hell Up episode 292. I'm so glad that you don't know what you're talking about. Ha ha ha. No offense. Dudes. <laughs> Dudes in, in bold. Dudes, I was a victim of child abuse, betrayal, neglect, and abandonment, and just indescribable terror. Like the kind that gets a parent thrown in jail for decades. There has to be a place that that evil, that evil stuff goes uh, and a place for those willing to collaborate with the evil one on the torture of God's precious children. Right? So, so of course, I don't know your life. I don't know what you've experienced. But after episode 292, something inside of me just wants to say boldly, in bold, Mike, it sounds like you haven't experienced the evil I have seen. Thank God. You don't know the psychopathic, narcissistic, terrorist, willingly demonic, gleeful torture that I was unfortunate enough to call mom. I just want to say, you don't get it. Or maybe you do. What do I know? I'm just reacting as, as to what I perceive your posture to be in that episode. But the evil I experienced in my mother's house... Um, was like the breath of a T-Rex up close, a roaring train blowing my hair, fearing death while drowning in class five rapids, a slow motion um, car accident and a PTSD machine that set off a hand grenade in the rib cage of my personhood. I just wanted to impress upon you the real world evil terror of a nine-year-old living with demons and a demonized single parent. I could feel it constantly. Um, I think you might not understand how incompatible that evil is with the kingdom of Jesus who deliberately, I mean, I know you understand, but maybe you don't understand. Right. Uh, Psalm 18, baby, the words of that Psalm are not the ones of redemption of evil. Don't want to base my theology on a Psalm. I get that, but I think it reveals some of the character of God. For me, the spirit demands a place for justice for people who choose evil who, if their child asks for an egg, would give them a scorpion? Who, if their child is saved by Jesus, would allow evil, unrepentant, unredeemed rapists with them for an eternity? I mean, man, do you want this for your kids? Anyway, that's all I have to say. I love you all. Seth is awesome. Voxology has been a delicious meal of righteousness that I was hungry and thirsty for. You have uh, my permission to use this on air. So, right. Heavy duty. Holy crap so so to jeremy from mike 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 and tim um holy crap no i have no idea none can't even fathom no conceptual window into what that was like none and furthermore if i gave the impression that that isn't taken seriously and is utterly incompatible with the way of jesus and that will be wiped away from the face of the earth completely, then that is on me, and that is just shoddy intellectual and biblical work because Jesus is so clear uh, about the reality of judgment, particularly on the, the, the people of God. He's clear about the reality um, of judgment against children, and he, he pulls them into the center of his community and illustrates sin, that sin against them, it would be it would be better for you to have a rock tied to you and be thrown into the bottom of a lake than for what, what's going to happen. I don't remember the specifics on the episode. I think I was speaking about judgment and wrath as non-personal entities. Um, but for the life of me, man... Uh, if that came across as somehow being okay with what you're describing or anything like it, um, man, I just, there's no way. 
There's absolutely no way. The How judgment gets played out, I have questions about. Is, you know, is eternally consciously tormenting people, is that compatible too with the way of Jesus? And is that what Jesus means by Gehenna when he speaks of hell? I have questions about that, but I don't have questions about the reality of my judgment and the judgment of people who are so unbelievably evil. And so, man, my heart goes out to you. I am so sorry for what that must have done. And you're right, I don't get it. Absolutely. Hell for you has not been some conceptual piece of theology. Hell for you has been a lived reality that's now imprinted upon your body and soul. And um, so if I'm treating it cavalierly, man, I, I, and I don't mean if in the sense of, hey, I, don't, I just don't remember what I was saying or my posture in the episode. And so I'm just right. like, dude, I'm sorry. Anything you want to add to that, Timothy? No, I'm sorry too. I'm sorry that that is a reality. Yeah. Yeah, and one of the one of the things that shocked me when I first started looking at heaven and hell was the fact that they're also described in the Bible as present realities. Right. You know, they're not just sometime in the future. So, um, you know, no matter how, I mean, love <laughs> It's it's so funny. People sometimes will set God's love and God's justice against each other as if mm. Those were two opposing sort of attributes. And I just, man, being a parent taught me that's not how it works. Um, did we talk about Seth arriving home? Last um, week? Yeah. Yeah. So, so my love for him turned into terrible fury. Right. And judgment. <laughs> right? But it was out of love that that fury and judgment came. And that's the picture that Jesus seems to paint about whatever judgment is and looks like. Uh, there isn't this just get off scot-free card if you pray a prayer and um, you know, and then do things like that. I don't know how that reconciles with like the thief on the cross. I have no idea how that reconciles. Like, can you just say, "Yep, Jesus, I accept you, and it's all good"? Right. I really don't know. I used to have opinions about that. I just don't know how it works. Um, but I think Jesus is so, so clear as he speaks of Gehenna and the reality of judgment more than anybody else in the New Testament, um, that that's a piece you just have to reckon with. You cannot wish that away. And as much as we'd love to just say, well, yeah, it's just out there with all those people, you know, there's also the surprise of, oh, the judgment begins with the household of God. So anyway, man, that's just a, I read it. I'm like, wow. Um, but, you know, we always, we always want to be critiqued, for sure. Um, uh, particularly because I, so, I do so much of the talking. And as the as scriptures say, where there are many words, sin is not absent. <laughs> <laughs> That's why Timothy is much more righteous than I. No, right. no question about that. That and the beard he has. So... I want to just take a moment to to just acknowledge that and respond to that. Um, I want to kind of dip back in to a bit of the Bible convo. We, we've got loads of questions um, about that that we will be getting to. But um, uh, it was fun to do our first horror-themed episode um, <laughs> with Caitlin. And you all are just so fun on social media and... Uh, emails and your comments and insights and things that we missed and it was great my wife was like oh well, you missed a couple that was in the church that was great yeah. um so loved it loved it loved it loved it so uh, and caitlin is just the best so thank you for i hope i hope we uh didn't spoil it in the bad way but maybe there was one person at least that came that emailed in and said he was inspired to watch it after listening to us so that i don't know how often that happens um, but we want to, I want to talk today about a big word called inerrancy. Oh boy. Now I want to reset the table months ago. We, uh, interviewed four people about, Hey, their takes on the Bible. And we asked them very similar questions and, and got all sorts of fascinating, fascinating answers. And then we started kind of building, um, 
uh, a loose definition that, that the Bible is this co-participation between God and humans in the same way that almost everything else is. And it's got a God side and a human side. And because it has a human side, we are dealing with things like accommodation and genre and literary analysis and, um, you know, the, the, the fact that, that God allows the individual authors to have, you know, he's not dictating to them, so they have say in this. He's not giving them the exact words, you know, that's, that sort of thing. And then, and then um, on the God side, because we believe that God is inspiring this or that God's a participant in this, there are a bunch of words that come with that part of it too. And we haven't talked about any of those words yet, like authority, inspiration, infallibility, inerrancy. And so I want to start uh, talking on the God word side of that equation, that the Bible is a both a divine and human word. So we've talked about what it means, at least the beginnings of what it would mean that it's a human word. Right. And that it's messy in the same way the humans are. But what, is it, what does it mean to say that it's a God word, too? And usually, um, at least in the circles and in, in the seminary that I've been running in forever, uh, the first thing you say about the Bible is that it's inspired by God. And because it's inspired by God, it's in, infallible or inerrant. God cannot lie. God cannot tell something that's in, tell us something that's incorrect, and and the Bible doesn't. The Bible is infallible, and so I'm going to read. This is from the Gospel Coalition. This is their definition of infallibility: the doctrine of the authority, not infallibility, inerrancy. And I, I keep slipping and using those words, and there's a slight nuance between them. But I'm meaning inerrancy, which is yeah. in without or negation errant or error so it's without error is the is the what inerrancy means the bible is without error so this is their definition of that the doctrine of the authority and errancy of the scripture is that as a corollary of the inspiration of scripture the god-breathed scriptures are wholly true in all things they assert in the original autographs that means in the original writings and therefore function with the authority of god's own words Okay, so inerrant means, uh, and it's a corollary to the inspired, that the God-breathed scriptures are wholly true in all things they assert in the original autographs and therefore function with the authority of God's words. All right, so that's one definition. Another definition, and this is from the great theologians at Wikipedia. Biblical inerrancy is the belief that the Bible, quote, is without error or fault in all of its teaching. Or at least, quote, scripture in the original manuscripts does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. All right? Uh, and, and the idea is that God, of course, is faithful, cannot lie. He would never deceive. Uh, and God knows all things. So if this is God's word and he is inspiring the authors of the Bible, he's inspiring them into true things. And that if the Bible contains errors, that somehow negates the God part of this equation. Right. Yeah. It's all or none. Well, we, yeah, we're going to get to that. That's absolutely the way it's presented in, in the circles I, I uh, travel in. And so... Um, Often discussions around inerrancy, and, and this is a relatively, the word is about a hundred years old or so. Um, the concept's been around longer than that, uh, but the, you know, people have, have regarded the Bible as trustworthy, obviously, since um, it existed in even the oral traditions. But um, inerrant, without error, was a deliberate move against liberal theologians, particularly from Europe, who, using higher criticism and literary criticism, were suggesting, no, there are errors in the Bible, or, or at least apparent ambiguities in the Bible, and they affirmed its, its errancy, uh, and so we, of course, reacted to that by affirming its inerrancy. So uh, this has been, and if you're not super familiar with some of these words, I don't know that you've missed much other than um, inerrancy has become sort of a litmus test for faithfulness um, in certain theological circles. Now, 
but, but inerrancy classic the the way we've just read about it it does sort of beg questions like um okay well what do you do when the pentateuch is attributed to moses but there are clearly parts of it that are written um long after moses lived um how do we match modern understandings of the universe's origins with uh, what seems to be the plain reading of Genesis 1? Uh, is the book of Jonah actual history or is it an extended kind of parable? Uh, what do we do with weird things in the Gospels? Like, um, did Jesus heal one blind man on the way out of Jericho, as in Mark, or the way into Jericho, as in Luke? Or was it two blind men, as it is as mentioned in Matthew? Now, again, a commitment to inerrancy as it's been defined says that's a problem and you got to work that out. And right. we're going to talk about how inerrancy functions. But there is a true a answer bit. to it. You just have to you know, yes. explain it. Yes. So, so sometimes people will nuance inerrancy to say things like um, scripture is true in all matters of theology and salvation and salvation history but it's not always accurate when it comes to the fine historical details about the israelites or the chronology of jesus's life right so it's inerrant when it comes to matters of the faith right. it's not always inerrant when it comes to matters of history so that's that's one way you can get around it the more common way to deal with those pesky questions is to throw in a statement about proper interpretation so this is another definition, and this is the definition we're going to talk about. This is another definition um, in the Evangelical Dictionary of Theology that says, Inerrancy is the view that when all the facts become known, they will demonstrate that the Bible, A, in its original autographs, and B, correctly interpreted, is entirely true and never false in all that it affirms, whether that relates to doctrine or ethics or to the social, physical, or life sciences. All right, let me read that again, because this is super, this is a super important nuance. All right, so you can just kind of say, hey, it's without error. And, and then the natural questions that you can, any atheist website is gonna have are just like, well, okay, but the text says Moses wrote this, but you know, there's this later date, and was Jonah and the whale real? And how was the flood worldwide? And, and, and does Big Bang square with Genesis 1? Is Genesis 1 giving us science? And what about like how many <laughs> angels were at the tomb of Jesus? And I mean, all these questions sort of natu naturally arise when you define inerrancy that way. Right. Okay. So one nuance is to say, well, it's not inerrant in, in the history of the thing, it's inerrant in terms of theology and salvation that's one dodge and i you know i there are people that hold that i don't think it's super consistent with what the text sort of says about itself so another way to deal with those sorts of questions is a nuance the way we've just read inerrancy is when all the facts are known that statement that's nuance number one when everything is known and we don't know everything they will demonstrate that the Bible in its original context, that's number two, in the original autographs, the originals that were penned by the apostles and correctly interpreted is entirely true and never false in what it affirms. Now, what I'm going to argue in the next several moments, I need to be really clear on um, because I've gotten, I've gotten knocked and who cares what Mike Erie, who, who is Mike Erie and why do we care what he thinks? There are some I, people who like care. You, there are I some care. people who care and are very critical because I'm critical of this concept as if um, this is the only high view of the Bible you can have. What I want to suggest is twofold. Number one, inerrancy is actually the lowest view of the Bible that you can have. And number two, that it's a not helpful, it's not a helpful concept to describe what the bible actually is all right heresy no well i don't know i don't think so um but it's just like saying the bible's flat and that you take it all literally right those are just modern categories pushed in reaction to other theological agendas pushed onto the text um to do work that the text itself doesn't fit neatly into right and so, so, so first of all, 
Um, let's take one of the nuances and say, okay, so if inerrancy only applies to the original documents and we don't have the original documents, yeah. then wh what are we arguing about? I mean, yeah. why does this even matter? How is this totally. even helpful? Yeah. Now, the response is, hey, we have thousands of manuscript copies and with a high, high, high degree of likelihood can reconstruct the originals. But then if, if that's true, then why do you have to say inerrancy only exists in the originals and not the copies if right. we have such faithful representation of the originals, right? And so it, it, it's a great way to say, well, I'm sure these are copyist errors or I'm sure these are manuscript uh, textual variations or whatever. And, and again, I'm not an expert in any of this. Um, and there are loads of people who would come at me hard about some of the things I'm saying totally. And there are other people that would come at me hard and be like, dude, you're not even, you're not even crazy enough with this stuff. But I, I just want to, to ask the question, okay, if we don't have the originals and I agree that there may be 400 words that are in dispute over the, over 2000 years of textual history. I mean, it's yeah. hardly anything and it's certainly nothing major. Um, so, I, so I totally concur with that, but th that you have to nuance it by saying only in the original manuscripts is to acknowledge that in the copy history, there are adjustments that editors do insert things or clean things up or whatever, and that that's part of the humanness of the whole thing, right? Um, and so evidently God saw fit if we're, if we're just reading what God wanted by what happened, and again, we can't always do this, but that, that the literary history of the Bible is not incompatible with its inspiration. Hmm. You know, that part of what it means to be a human and divine word is it is a bit of a mess. And there yeah. are things that people have tried to clean up. And we're in a privileged position to have so much available manuscript evidence that we can reconstruct the original but just to say, hey, it's only inerrant in the original, and it's not inerrant in the copies that we have, is to kind of dodge the thing. Yeah. Because, because then it's like, well, then why didn't God keep the thing inerrant the whole way through? Um, so that's one problem I have with that nuanced definition. The second problem I have is this little, this little phrase called properly interpreted. Yep. Boy. Now, this is where inerrant functions in really tribal kinds of ways. Because what you'll find happen with the concept of inerrancy is that they don't mean that the Bible is inerrant. Uh, often people mean that their understanding of the Bible is inerrant. Yeah, totally. And if you're disagreeing with their understanding of the Bible, you're disagreeing with the Bible. And if you're yep. disagreeing with the Bible, yep. then you're disagreeing with God. And if you're disagreeing with God, you're a pagan, liberal, socialist, Marxist. That's right. Or whatever. Those are all my middle names. Timothy, John, whatever. <laughs> yes. And so, so obviously, obviously, interpretation matters. But there's no claim the, the claim of inerrancy isn't on my interpretation, right? The claim of inerrancy is based on the text, not on the interpreter. Right. Right. So, so what exactly is inerrancy guaranteeing here that I will, if I just follow the right method, then I will come up with the right interpretation. And to disagree with that interpretation is to disagree with the inspiration of God behind the text. And, and so I've seen inerrancy claimed around Genesis, right? This was six literal 24-hour days. Totally. Um, and if you don't believe that, you don't believe the Bible. Yep. Um, if you don't believe in a literal Adam and Eve, you don't believe the Bible. If you don't, I mean, there, there was a huge dust up. We're going to have a guest here in a couple of weeks, Beth Allison Barr, who wrote a book called um, Recovering Biblical Womanhood. And um, there was a huge dust up uh, where somebody accused or she's arguing for the equality of of women in all roles in uh, church and society and whatever and of course the contrary view decried her um hermeneutics as undercutting inerrancy and what they meant by that was inerrancy was just equated with complementarianism for them yeah right and if you don't get these words i know they're all theological baggage words but 
But my, my, my guess is you know exactly what it feels like when somebody gives you an interpretation of the Bible and says, this is the interpretation of the Bible. And if you disagree with it, then, Peace. you know, you, yeah, you disagree with the Bible. Now, there are parts of the Bible that I dare say are core to the Christian faith. And to kind of jettison them is to jettison the center of what it would mean to be a Christian altogether. But that list, it seems to me, is very short. There are times when Paul draws a narrow circle around things like um, 1 Corinthians 15. You've, this is the gospel you received. This is the gospel that was preached to you. Uh, that Jesus died the on the third day he rose. Yes. Uh, and that he, was, uh, that he was buried and according to the scriptures on the third day arose and appeared to us. That seems to be some sort of like early summary. Yeah. Um, uh, and we, we also want to say that as we've been talking about interpreting the Bible, that there, there is no foolproof method because the same people who appeal to the historical grammatical method that I learned in seminary interpret Revelation in an entirely different way than I interpret Revelation. So just the appeal to method doesn't guarantee anything. And that's the problem, right? Is the Bible seems if you jettison this wooden, narrow understanding, then it's it's just anyone's guess. And we're all stuck and it means nothing. And, and you can believe it or not. Like I saw this great text that was like, uh, you know, it's like, um, Oh, what's the first one? I don't remember. But it was it like the like woke and bespoke, but there's a first one. Um like a take on something was was here's the take on something and then here's the woke take something on something and then here's the bespoke take on something. Right. Uh but it was like woke, um the first one, damn it, I'm screwing this up like crazy. The first one was like, um uh, you know, Paul hates women. The woke version is, you know, Paul in context doesn't hate women. Bespoke was Paul in context doesn't matter. I still disagree with him no matter what he says. You know, or something, I mean, there, there is this sense of, well, okay, even if we do the proper context stuff that you're saying, oh, that's the dryer. If you're doing the proper context <laughs> stuff, it still doesn't mean I, so let's say the Bible did disagree with same-sex gendered um, erotic relations. Well, I just don't agree with it. And so the fear of the people preaching inerrancy is that that's where this goes. We just get to pick and choose right. whatever we want to affirm and deny. And there's no guide to how it is that we determine what good interpretations are from what bad interpretations are. And they're partially right in the sense that I think we all are familiar with harm that comes from people just ripping things out of context. Yeah. So th there's a partial truth to that. But literally, when you say, okay, it's only in the original autographs and it's only when it's properly interpreted and you just sort of leave that without clarification, then again, it just seems like inerrancy, all inerrancy is in this case is a tribal marker. It's yeah. not actually doing any real work because we don't have the original autographs and how do we know when it's properly interpreted? None of that is specified. My dryer is going crazy. <laughs> is this making sense? Yes. So it's very easy, and I've done this. I mean, I'm guilty of all of this, right? Of mistaking inerrancy of the Bible for, for inerrancy of my opinion, right. my interpretation. And, and, and I, I still fall under this trap. Like there are interpretations that I think are absolute rubbish. Right. And I think, I think there are better interpretations. So I, I have no way out of this except to say, I do think process matters and I do think fruit is the ultimate determiner of good interpretations from bad ones. And so we're going to come back around. We did cross, we did community. We're going to come back around to new creation and talk about what that means. Zing. So are, are you with me so far, Timothy? I am. I'm here. <laughs> now, the, the third thing that I, I want to fuss at is the all or nothing thing that you referenced earlier. Right. That inerrancy is often presented as th there cannot be one error, one ambiguity, one unresolved tension. And I've actually bought and read books that harmonized all the Bible difficulties. 
You know, like, well, maybe Jesus made several trips to Jericho. And one time there was one person and another time there was two people. Or, you know, in, in Mark, it's like there's one angel, but in Matthew, it's two. But in Mark, maybe it's outside and in Matthew, it's inside. I mean, there are, all, there are ways and some of them fit naturally and are really smart and others are totally forced and feel arbitrary. So you're saying you read books that take all those inconsistencies, but piece them together in a way that they become consistent. Yeah. So like Jonah and the whale, right? Um, if it's not a parable and if this really happened, then let me tell you a story in 1814, I'm you know, not getting yeah. this right, uh, about a man who lived in the belly of a fish. See, it could right. actually happen. Totally. Or the day the sun stood still. Yeah, there's this, uh, there's this phenomena. Or the plagues. Yeah, we know that like, you know, if, if you get rid of the flies, then frogs are going to go crazy or what. I mean, yeah. that was like junior high apologetics or you yes. know, like everything got pretty like the Grand Canyon exists because it's a large scale irrigation from the flood. Right. Remember, you know, <laughs> right. And dinosaurs fit on the ark because there were eggs. Right. That was the big one that got me. It's like, yeah. They came they died, then they were resurrected as eggs, and then they went on the ark, and then they disappeared after that. Well, not according to some, some freaking timelines, Tim. You have not obviously been in the Creation Museum. I have um, I've been meaning to go. Oh, I know, I know. We could it's, do a Vox, Voxology road trip. TikTok. <laughs> um, that would be great. But, but so, so there are three issues. Let's um, just no, rent a van. We'll, we'll podcast the whole time on the road. We'll you know, we thought, these things. we thought about doing that, like going to li every crazy thing That'd we could fun. get a hold of. Um, you know, whether it's the Creation Museum or like there's some King James only sort of places that, that are, you know, absolutely crazy. That would be so fun. Um, so, yeah, let's just uh, let's get on the road. Um, <laughs> I'm still I'm just throwing it all in my head right now. I'm like I'm 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 watching a YouTube series in my head right now of what that looks like, and it, it's pretty good. I think it's pretty funny. Now, here's why I say that I think inerrancy is um, a really low view of the Bible, and I know, my goodness, this whole and it's a bit hyperbolic because I I think God does tell the truth, and I and I think the Bible is inspired. But I just don't think it's a it's a helpful word, and I think because we've so emphasized it, it's become tribal. But it's also set a lot of people up for losing their faith or minimally deconstructing their faith when they were told every bit of this um, is inerrant, and then they read it for themselves and go, "Oh, well, what about this? Or how do we handle this?" And often, popular views of inerrancy aren't nuanced enough to handle those sorts of questions yeah, totally. and it's either all true or it's all false and that's just not how the bible works so i mean think about think about this um and, and gombas used the used an example that was was similar but like if you get a letter from your kid what what do you that it's incredibly meaningful to you when you say how, when you say that letter, my dryer, when you say that letter, it, would you look at a letter like that, that is from the depths of my son's soul, affirming um, me and his mom or whatever else, would you look at that and is the highest compliment you could give it, could, would you say, oh, that's inerrant? That's without error. I mean, people would be like, that's the dumbest thing. Right. It, inerrant doesn't apply. Like, how is a poem inerrant? Right. Right? I mean, how how is a lament inerrant? How are codes that were given to triage fallen humanity, how are they inerrant? What does that right. mean? So even if you grant, even if you grant the like the concept, but there are parts of the Bible that just doesn't apply to. Right. Like what is that? What is, how how is Song of Solomon inerrant? How are the Psalms inerrant? How are how is Lamentations inerrant? How is the Sermon on the Mount inerrant? Right? It just isn't. It isn't a word that captures what's happening. Right. Right. The text is beautiful. It's inspiring. It's moving. It's passionate. It's it's mysterious and awe and wonderful. And I mean, so I would affirm 
that it's true that it's true but the idea that it's an errant i just don't i don't get what that buys us and it seems to set so many people up for disappointment when they encounter the bible as it really is instead of the golden tablet view that just said hey god inscribed this and he did it perfectly and if it's if it's you know if there's any tension or ambiguity at all it's in your head it's not in the text and i just want to say well why can't it be in the text and why can't that be okay if that's what the text is doing um and i i think that's a much higher view of the bible than just a flat reading um a literal like just a simple hey it's all inerrant it's all god's word so we all take it literally and it's like no it's not that so so uh, even inerrantists, like really sophisticated inerrantists, admit that God accommodated himself to the ancient worldview, that they saw windows in the sky and the water above and the water below separated by the firmament. And we know that's not what's happening. How do you, I mean, so is that inerrant or is that just accommodating? So I just don't think it's a helpful concept. I So language I use, not that I'm anybody to anybody, but language I use, so I believe the scripture is true. And I take it literarily, not literally, right. right? And where it says, this is what happened, I give it the benefit of the doubt unless I'm shown otherwise. But where it's poetry, it's poetry. And where it's, you know, it's apocalypse, it's apocalypse. And where it's prophecy, it's prophecy. And where it's narrative, it's narrative. And where it's biography, it's biography. And so you, to, to capture inerrancy to, in doing justice to the human part of, of the Bible, you have to nuance it by saying things like, well, not only is it in the original autographs, so and not only do we mean properly interpreted, but it has to also... Uh, deal with the fact that God accommodated himself, that God was meeting people where they were and pull, pulling them forward. He was doing triage that that often in the Bible, God's not dealing with the ideal. He's dealing with the real, right? I mean, inerrant just doesn't pick up any of that stuff. So if the litmus test is, do you believe in the inerrancy of the Bible? I will say, well, what do you mean by that? Yeah. And it and depends which version they give, right? Do you just believe it's... it's um, it's without error. And for me, I don't know how to describe my son's letter as without error. Yeah. Some people read the Psalms and they go, hey, one of the psalmists was talking about dashing babies' heads against the rocks. Yeah. That seems in error, right? <laughs> but then we yes. realize what a psalm is and how God is welcoming even that disgusting sentiment, right? I mean, so I just don't, I just think it's true. I would grant it's inspired. I would grant that it does have authority. Absolutely. Absolutely. But it's not grounded on the in the original autographs properly interpreted when all the facts are known. Right. I'm not grounded in my view of the Bible on that. Because my faith isn't in the Bible, for crying out loud. Yes, the Bible introduced me to Jesus, but then Jesus introduced me to the Bible. And the Bible that Jesus is reading and wrestling with allows for all sorts of this craziness. It's the laundry. It's, How many times is it going to beep, Tim? Very dry at this point. I had it on the more dry setting for sure. Who wants who wants moist boxers? Who wants those? No. Um, so anyway, thoughts, Timothy. Oh, I have a bunch. Well, let's go. Well, one, I agree, and inerrancy has always been something. It's not even something that I wrestle with. I don't. It's not. I don't give it any credence. Those three, the three uh, check marks you just did, like the, yeah. So the uh, divinely inspired, or what was it? The um, first one was the original text, original the autographs, three the original yep. autographs, yep. and then properly the, interpreted, which begs that the interpreter is also inerrant, and then yeah. the facts begs that there is a historical account that runs alongside, or like you know what I mean? Like there's so much other errant or or things that would need to be inerrant on the side just with those three things mm-hmm. to to qualify or to quantify the other things being it's just a it just feels dumb but that's just on that but i wrote down a couple <laughs> questions because the, the inerrancy is because this is what i do in my classroom right like i say pull the thread 
You made yeah. you made a claim, pull the thread. Right. So, you know, with you when you're talking about your kid's letter and they say, Is your kid's letter inerrant? Is it without error? And yeah. I say, Well, then what does that mean? What is error in this context? And then let's right. let's pick at that. Because the inerrancy conversation is a real short one. It's like this is inerrant, period. Mm-hmm. You know, get off the bus or No, not not among top drawer scholars. Top drawer scholars. Top drawers. Top drawers will admit for all sorts of nuance. All nuance. sorts of nuance. Well, then pull that thread. <laughs> nuance? Yeah. yeah. Well, you yeah. know what I mean? Like you, it's just, it, it's, yes. it, is in, it feels to me, as this one person, really incompatible. But I wrote down sliding scale. So what is the, is inerrancy a sliding scale? Is that what happens with grammatical errors in original texts? Is that, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. where do you where do you begin and end with what is an error and what isn't? And how soon do you throw the whole baby out the bathwater with errors in text? And then yes. is Great sin question. not the same thing? Where, uh, to, to go back to the email from the beginning of this, like how sin and evil and that kind of stuff is quantified through history Mm-hmm. So like David and Bathsheba, you know, there's murder, there's, you know, forced sexual relations, or at least it's hinted that that could be something to that extent or whatever. But yeah, he, you know, there is a, what is the sliding scale on sin? If, uh, if, you know, to go to the hell and the, you know, what is it? Gehenna and Hinnom and that kind of like those things like how Hinnom, is that was it? The Valley of Hinnom? Ben Hinnom. Yep. Uh, that's a sliding scale too then because cultural understandings of what is acceptable and not acceptable changes. So the errancy of what is the unforgivable sin or not also slides. So all these errant conversations are on a sliding scale if they, like is our American evangelical understanding of errancy and in an English translation, how does that compatible with, or is it only if you speak perfect Greek or Hebrew? Right. Right. Is that is that when the because in translation, we've already covered how many words don't translate over perfectly, so right. there is automatically errancy involved in a word to word. So it's just there's so many ways in which this doesn't work. Yes, but, but we we can't we it, can't stay there. No. Okay. Great. Because that's what I was going to ask next. Because I I'm I and I and I always try to say this with a caveat of like. I know that I'm comfortable tearing all the walls down to see what happens and look at things. And I know that other people, not all of us operate that way. And so I'm always trying to hold in my brain that, you know, you pull the rug out on some things and I'm like, Ooh, interesting. What's under the rug. And some people are like, you just pulled out the rug and I can't stand anymore. So I'm always trying to be like, that's how some people take, yeah, you know, tearing things down as it's, it gets real scary right away. Like you just told me the Bible might not be, word for word that's the only version of the bible that i know so then it's like well then what what do you do with it now it's your turn (laughs) (laughs) well we're certainly not left in a complete um interpretive nightmare some people say we are that either we can't get out of our own interpretive grids enough to even you know claim that we can approximate an author intent my clothes are going to be so wrinkle free dog it's like it. a it's kind of like it's a, i'm going to be curious when i listen back to it editing because it is almost like a censor <laughs> you're yeah. just getting buzzed out oh my goodness yes it's demonic attack i think we can all agree <laughs> um that is so, an interpretation so so i would just say um i have unbelievably high view of the bible i i see the bible as mediating christ's authority um, over his community the church absolutely and that my interpretive stance is one of humility but also um, community that we work this out um, in the historic stream of interpreters that's two thousand years old and then for the hebrew scriptures even longer than that and we stand in the community of faith um, today realizing that somebody who has been abused is going to hear passages on hell differently than someone like myself who is not. Um, Someone who is male and privileged is going to hear it differently than someone who is not. Um, And so you have to open sort of the doors into this communal um, interpretation. So 
we don't have the originals. We have, I think, great approximations of them. And I think we can know that there are certain interpretations better than others. And this is where I disagree with some people. I, I do think context, method, uh, hermeneutics, that all matters. That, that, um, that bad theology is super harmful. Absolutely. Yeah. And we've seen it. We've seen it. Um, that doesn't mean that, that good theology is always easy to swallow or doesn't challenge us. No, I think Jesus is very challenging. But I think that we can have a way to, to talk about uh, interpretations that are more faithful to the text than other interpretations. And so we're putting forward this idea that fruit and what kind of fruit, a community shaped like a cross, um, a, uh, a community that um, reads and enters and inhabits the text as a community. And then we're going to talk about a community that, that inhabits and practices new creation dynamics. I think we're on the road there. And we want to beat up on the idea that, that inspired means that God dictated. And God okay. dictated means that if he dictated, then he can't be wrong on anything. So the scripture can't be wrong. But here are these questions that people have. And so you're either wrong or you're not a believer, right? You've thrown the Bible out altogether. And we just want to yeah. say that's not the best way to approach the Bible at all at all the bible isn't isn't being presented as if it were a, some sort of brick wall that uh, you know a piece comes out and the whole thing topples the bible is this wonderfully odd mix of all these literary genres encompassing thousands of years and dozens of authors that are all telling this story about yahweh's work in the world to redeem it and ultimately in his son jesus right? And the church that gets born out of that. And we have to do, this is not deconstruction. This is not pulling the rug. This is just called repentance and discipleship. It's the recognition that, hey, there was a lot of culture that seeped its way into some of these discussions. And part of our job is people who want to follow Jesus faithfully in the world, not because we're afraid of hell, but because we find him to be the, the human. And we're compelled by who he was and what he is and what he's doing in the world that we want to render faithfully um, his ongoing presence in the world and testify to it. And so we study the nuances of this ancient story that pick up all of the things that people have felt and wrestled with and the questions they've had. And we sit with all of those. We don't try to erase them or flatten them. We don't shame people for having them. We just let them all sit there and call us to Christ. That's what the Bible's doing, right? It's a witness to the reality of King Jesus in the world and the formation of a church that bears his name. Yeah. It's not to sit as a scientific textbook and make perfect sense and explain um, all of the nuances of the way the world is. So I don't think we're left in the dark here. I think that um, you start with Jesus, again, always. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, you just start with Jesus. Jesus takes you then into the Old Testament. Dang it. <laughs> And then you're into the massive story of Israel and its glory. You're going to get a text from Kevin. Huh? You're going to get a text from Kevin. About my dryer? Yeah. What's he going to say about my dryer? He's going to say, Mike, turn off your dryer before you hit record. You know what? <laughs> We're recording at an odd time for both of us. That's very true. And so I was, I was absolutely going to sneak some laundry in, man. <laughs> you know? can't blame me for that and i put wrinkle guard do Ooh. i want yeah i have enough wrinkles man i don't need more our interpretation of the bible could take some wrinkle guard yes anyway i think we've said <laughs> enough and i'm sure we're going to get questions and pushback and it will be glorious glorious but but this is this is to me this is consistent with everything we've been saying this is nothing yes. new and it's okay to say an errant um, like the term evangelical, served a purpose, and it doesn't serve that purpose well anymore. I think there are just other ways to talk about the Bible from the God word side that are much more helpful and don't set people up for this, oh, well, how many 
people were healed at the gate. You know, and, and, and oh, if I can't, if I can't reconcile it, then the whole Bible is false. No, it's not. You have to understand ancient conventions. Uh, you have to understand the ancient literary genres. You have to understand the accommodation that God was doing. I mean, there's so many things we've added to how we approach the Bible where it just is not a flat, oh, it says this in English, so this is what it means anymore. That's just not how it works. It's just boring. That's just boring. boring. There's so the new, like the, it's just, there's so, I think it's so much bigger and we've just, we just want to limit it so much and that's unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. Is Tolkien inerrant? <laughs> well, to Stephen Colbert, possibly. <laughs> well, no, I just mean like if the Bible's world building, if the Bible's introducing us to reality. Yeah. Um, well, I just, I, I, like I was driving today, I was thinking about the chaos of the universe and you know i always i love seeing those little like you know the the what is it what was the famous picture the tiny blue dot or whatever when they were, it was looking back oh at yeah earth and it was from just the moon one yeah or i think it was further out it was like earth was just the tiny it was the same size as a star in the distance yeah. but it was yeah. a little bit blue and I'm like that's us and then you see those maps where they show just our galaxy and how small we are just in our galaxy and they show our dot of a galaxy within a cluster yes. and how small we are and the chaos and the like enormous the enorm the enormity of yep. Yep. Um, everything and just this craziness that's hurling around. I, it just, all of it to me just begs us to like engage rather than just be like, what's the rule on this? Great. Right. And, and then right. probably not follow the rule anyways. So it's like, it's just so, it seems so much bigger. Like the people at the gate, like you just mentioned, is it whether there was two or three or whatever, or is it, what was the point of that being included? Right. What was, what was God doing in this situation? Why is this important? Right. Or like I tell my students, like, I was like, you guys, you know, your generation is going to change the way that history is taught because we all had to memorize dates and things, yeah. but you yep. guys have computers in your pockets. So dates aren't important anymore. Now it's maybe more important to ask, why did this war happen? Not when. Yes. And to think critically about the things and engage with the history to understand how this happens so that maybe it might not happen again. But I think this stuff's got to be somewhat similar. Like it's begging us to be involved. And mm. I like that version of God. And maybe I'm projecting that my whatever on it, but I, I see through all these different series that we do, I just see a God that is like coming after us and asking us to come after mm -hmm. him and like mm -hmm. engage in that. And that's, that is inspiring yeah. to me. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Amen, dude. Well, Timothy, you will have the last word, my friend. Boom, shalaka laka. Yep. Somebody so, call the doctor. So <laughs> it's my kids. Oh. Anytime I hear that, I just think of Shaka Khan and the '80s. <laughs> just the '80s. God bless us. Um, all right, friends. Uh oh, the dryer fired back up. I'm gonna try to try to <laughs> you know hurry. What? Hurry before the next <laughs> the next buzz. Right. So you know what? Forget about you. Okay, I'm gonna do my own thing. <laughs> anyway, friends, thank you for listening. May the Lord bless ah! <laughs> <laughs> ah! ah! <laughs> Oh, that was perfect. See, God's oh, got a sense of humor. <laughs> you have to keep it all in. All of it. It's just so painful. I will make sure the dryer is off. <laughs> From now until the end of time, I oh, will make sure. I've learned my rich. lesson. I, I, how about I'll just never do laundry again? That is go. the easiest way. Oh, I tried. Just tell Justin God told you not to do it anymore. <laughs> May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give us peace and may we be wrinkle-free. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at Patreon dot com backslash 
Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials. Facebook.com backslash Voxology Podcast and on Instagram at Voxology. Thank you, thank you, thank you for walking the long road with us.